0: Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our own lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. by the Spirit, whom he has given us.
1: This is the word of God. You may be seated. There is a saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. There's a way of viewing life like it's an RPG game where you're just trying to level up get to the top of the pyramid, top of the hill. Unfortunately, that has also influenced the church. In the mid part of the first decade, what do you call it? The aughts? I'm not calling it that because that sounds stupid. Mid part of the first decade, there were all these churches, mega churches, springing up out of nowhere. There was Elevation Church. We sing some of their songs um, with Stephen Furtick. There was also the Village Church, led by Matt Chandler over in Dallas, Texas. And there was another church in Washington State called Mars Hill, led by Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll was at the top of the hill of preacher, so to speak. Um, His church sprung up overnight, became a mega church. He was influential, asked to speak at so many conferences, had so many things. When he was at a place, you knew it was going to be special, and it drew a huge crowd. Mark Drisgill fell, but his fall was very much unlike many other pastors fall because there was not, to my knowledge, any accusation of sexual misconduct. No, it was his unloving attitude as a pastor that caused his fall. He had a saying. In fact, he said it a number of times. He said that there was a, there was a hill of bodies below the, the bus of Mars Hill. And by God's grace, there would be a mountain. Meaning that there was people in the congregation because they didn't want to go with the program. They were crushed under the weight of his movement or church. That's such an unloving attitude. Now for for you, may you feel like that constant need of like getting to the top or whatever the world has for us. That was very popular in the 80s, right? You had Wall Street, greed is good. And you had this attitude of like always getting to the top, getting to the next level that's inflated, inflated in, infiltrated the church as well of who has the latest study who has the latest big thing to come out and people are so so passionate about getting to the top of whatever they are at Mark Driscoll could get got to the top but there's something he forgot what about love you can get to the top but if you forget about love you have nothing you can know all spiritual wisdom but you have nothing you can, you can surrender your body to the flames and still have nothing. You can be the most passionate advocate of marginalized groups, but you'll make their life worse if you don't have love. You can speak in tongues of men and of angels, but if you have not love, you have nothing. You're just a cli- clinging gong. Love is the rule of the kingdom. First and foremost, not our love, but God's love. God's love initiates, informs, and originates our love, our true love in Him. First for Him and then for others. This is a command. It is not a law. What I mean by that is not something we can say, I'm going to go out and do this, but it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the first fruit of the Spirit, love. It comes naturally. However, you can let so much of the world and so many lies of the enemy into your life that this fruit shrivels on the vine. Or you let the enemy steal it, pick it before it's ready. The enemy wants nothing more, well, he wants nothing more than for you to burn in hell. But if he cannot do that, he wants to steal from you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. In a way, he doesn't even have to steal it because so many will give this away because they think if they give it away, they can get what they truly want. And all they have left is misery because love is the rule of the kingdom. Before you knew Christ or were known by Christ, you tried to follow the law and you failed. I mean, I don't know everybody here. I don't know you. I don't know your stories, but I know this without even knowing you. You failed. You were trying to do what was good. You had laws in your life. And I don't care if you were raised Christian or if you were raised literally in a, a Wiccan house. You had laws you had to follow. I remember I had a buddy growing up and his mom was a, was a literal witch. She was a Wicca. But she had all of these rules for him to follow and he didn't follow them. I know because I heard about it when he got home late. You had all these rules to follow. You couldn't follow them so where does that leave you? You tried to follow the laws to gain the blessing of the lawgiver and to avoid the punishments. But you couldn't. You needed a savior. No, now that you know Christ, or rather are known by Christ, his love informs, originates, and directs your love. And against that, there is no law. First John. First John is a love letter. It may not seem like a love letter because it is so raw, it is so in your face, it is so it is so single directed toward our good that sometimes it feels harsh because sometimes he says, hey, you know these people, they're antichrists, they're children of the devil, they're in the dark, they call God a liar. It is raw, it is so hard hitting because it is more concerned with our good than for our happy acceptance. It's a, it's it's love that is so raw and real, it's hard to comprehend. It's why so many, and oftentimes myself included, like to pick and choose what part we will accept and which ones we will avoid. The Bible doesn't let us do that. Not in this letter and not from Genesis to Revelation. We accept all of it or none of it. When we accept part of it, we are accepting none of it. We are only accepting our voice that we are, uh, we are co-opting with the word of God. So in verse, so yes, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And yes, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we shall be called children of God. And so we are. And yes, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And yes, yes. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. All of this works together under one banner, and that banner is love. How does that work so well together? Well, it's what I've been preaching on since we began 1st John. It's what I've been explaining all month that I want to encourage you to take, I want you to encourage you to take advantage of this, of how this works together. Take advantage of the different opportunities you have to re-listen to these messages. They're on our website. They're on Apple Podcasts. Um, they're on YouTube. The local TV station runs them on Wednesdays. They're very content heavy and it's very, it's, it's there for a reason. Because I just don't tell you things. I don't tell, explain to you the scripture so that you can take a saying and then put it on a mug that makes you feel, you know, you know better. And then you can Instagram that with your food and just go, oh, that's good. No, my friends, I am equipping you for war, because believe it or not, tomorrow when you go to work, you're going to war. When you go to school, you're going to war. You're going to war, and the enemy is going to find any little part in you that you have not submitted to Jesus Christ, and he's going to attack that. And he will fool you, he will trick you, he will try to get your love out out of primarily with Christ and with other Christians, and on something else. So that the rule of love is obscured and he wants you to redefine love by your own your own imagination so that you will not be close to the very heart of God. So I'm equipping you for war today here on Sunday. I imagine those of you who were in the military, last week I, we honored our veterans. If you're in the military, you had a lot of equipment. And maybe I'm off base here, but I bet you there are some parts of the equipment you're like, that's stupid, I don't want to use that. It's not going to weigh me down. I know during the events of Black Hawk Down, the dramatization of that with the movie Black Hawk Down, um, they were many of them did not put the plates in their back of their of their bull, of their bulletproof vest because they're like we're not going to get shot in the back because that would mean we're running away, and several of them got shot in the back because the equipment you get matters. There are some there are some portions of scripture we don't understand in the moment of how that applies to us. However, this is not this is very practical. This is very practical. Do you love each other? That's the command of Christ. This letter of first John, it is a love letter, but it is a love that perfects. It's a love that equips. It's a love that protects. John repeats over and over that the command of Jesus Christ is to love one another. Problem is we don't know what love really is. Often our love that we love with is weak. It's selfish. It's pitiful. It would rather the person face destruction than for us to face their anger. It's a very it's a very lazy love. However, the love that God calls us to is powerful. It is strong. It is selfless. It is filled with courage. In the Koine Greek language, the language of the New Testament, there are many words for love. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. In English, we have just the one word, love. According to dictionary.com, last time I looked, there was 21 definitions for the one word love. So I can say I love pizza and I love my wife, but we all know, right, I don't mean the same thing. That's weird. Um, in the Greek language, there's many different words for love. And so C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, he picks out four of these words. He starts off with storge. Storge was the love you have for family members for your children, and children have for their parents, for your siblings. Then you had phileo love, which is a brotherly love. Though the city, Philadelphia, is the city of brotherly love because it literally means the city of brotherly love. Phileo, which is, which is brother, brotherly love. Delphia, a Greek city-state, the city of brotherly love. You had eros, which is sexual love, where we get the word erotic from. Side note on this, on these three loves right here, is that the Greeks, the Romans, the whole world at the time, they saw these three applicable in day-to-day life between each other, but they did not see the final one as being applicable to love that you would have for anybody, not even your spouse. You had your love in the family, you had a responsibility to family members, you had a love you had between between good friends, that's phileo love, a brotherly love. You had eros, which is sexual love that they would have towards whoever they wanted to have sex with. Because of this, divorce was more rampant in their world than it is in ours. Professor Tackett from Focus on the Family had mentioned that there was one person he came across and she had been married 21 different times. Why not? If the only love that you had in a marriage is eros, is storge, and is then once those things diminish, then just move on to somebody else. But the Bible's scandal is scandalous that it continually uses this one word, agape. Agape is selfless love. It was the highest version of love. You know, an 80s singer once once sang that uh, um, there has to be a higher love. There is a higher love. It's agape love. And the Greeks and the Romans did not use this word for a love you would have between each other, between friends. You didn't agape a friend. It's selfless. It's putting them before me. No, you don't do that with a friend. You don't do that with a spouse. They didn't even think you could agape a God. They didn't agape Zeus. So all of a sudden, these letters from the New Testament start circulating, and Jesus Christ tells them, agape one another. Are you kidding Put somebody else before me. I'm on the race to the top of the mountain. They might trip me up. I mean, I just need them to be my ladder. In, in the play, Julius Caesar, and Shakespeare supposedly got his information from, from a primary source, you have, you have the conspirators conspirac- conspirac- conspiring together to kill Caesar. And one of them's not so sure. So the other one tells him, you know something? Caesar seems humble, but that's only until he gets what he wants. Because humbleness, or he says lowliness, is the ladder all ambitious men must climb. But once they get to the top of it, they kick it away. Jesus says, agape one another, as though the destination is love. And that's something we continually forget Love is not the means I use to get what I want. God's love is what I want. God's love makes me secure. These different types of love, even that word agape, pales. It does not explain adequately the love that God has for you and the love he tells us to love one another with. Words and definitions are great useful but context is king and john will give the context for god's love and the love we should give for one another it's so much more than the word can explain words and definitions matter but context is king the context of our love that we ought to love each other with is not a platonic love of plato writing the republic it's jesus dying for his bride the church love with that kind of love our culture and every culture, culture definition of love is weak. It's insufficient. A love that would rather see the person destroyed physically, mentally, and spiritually than for that person to be angry with them. And man, do we see this today, don't we? We see people mutilating themselves and other people congratulating them. You ever hear stories, these, these detransitioning stories that will break your heart into a million pieces? Because these people had believed a lie and they had done something to themselves that cannot be undone. And the people in their life said, I love them, so I'm going to support them. Hey, you supported them into misery here on earth. If that's love, it's a weak love. With love like that, why do you even need hate? It's ultimately a selfish love that sacrifices the object of the love instead of sacrificing for the object of the tainted love. Elsewhere in the Bible, there's so much to be said about loving everyone, even our enemies, the other. But here in First John, John has this laser focus. You know what? Your primary love is Christ, and then right after that is your fellow believers. Brothers and sisters in the Lord should love one another. It's a no-brainer, but it's where the enemy attacks so here is our reminder us he calls dear children one the message of love two love acts and three love perfects in verse 11 he says from the beginning it is a popular phrase that John likes he talks about the beginning seven times just in this epistle here and what he's referring to what he's referring to is the gospel the gospel they heard him preach The gospel they heard other eyewitnesses preach of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It's the original message that from the beginning that Paul the Apostle in Galatians chapter 1 says that even if we or an angel from heaven should tell you a different one, let them be eternally condemned. So, John is not trying to pull rank here. He's like, remember the message you heard from the beginning? Verse 11. For this was the message that you heard from the beginning. And how does he summarize it? Love one another. Love one another. He wants to remind them that this isn't deep thoughts with John the Elder. It's why I preach verse by verse. This isn't deep thoughts with Pastor Jason. You shouldn't care what my deep thoughts are. You should care what the what the gospel, what the, God's word says. It's the mes- message delivered once for all. Paul the Apostle will say that even if the apostles or an angel from heaven should teach a different message, let them be eternally condemned. These are the very words of God. You have probably caught on by now that the greater context of the, of the letter of first John is the gospel of John. He makes references to the teachings of Jesus that he wrote down that were confirmed by other eyewitnesses. And what is John's summary of our life in Christ as the church is to love one another. John uses a phraseology here, brothers, and that just means those who are in the church. That's always a big question. Is is 1 John speaking, written to unbelievers or to believers? Very strongly, I believe it's to believers, because he constantly says, brothers. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain. So he gives an example of the first brother, and the first brother was a murderer. Cain is what happens when a brother hates. Cain's disobedience came from a lack of faith. Cain's disobedience and hatred were based on envy and pride which made him miserable. Cain also refused God's warning. We are are warned again here. Cain tried to hide his sin of hatred as well. Are you saved? It's a great question, right? Are you saved? Are you alive in Christ? If you died right now, where would you be going? I ask this question, you're in my office, chances are I've asked you that very question. And I want to know how you answer. Because many people will answer about something they've done. They'll say, Pastor, I prayed the prayer at camp, uh, you know, however many years ago. Or somebody will be in my office and they have a family member, and they're like, Pastor, they're not living for the Lord, but they're saved because they said the prayer. It might interest you in Scripture, never. Never used as justification for someone's salvation is that they said a prayer one time that the assurance of salvation comes from different places. There is an inward testimony of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit speaks to our spirit. It cries out, Abba, Father, that we are born again. So there's an inward witness, but there's also outward evidence. There's outward evidence because you do what you believe. In the last section, John said, Don't be fooled. The righteous live righteous, and the unrighteous live unrighteously. Sometimes we're so worried about being judgmental that we are giving people false assurance. If you are living for sin and loving your sin, chances are you are not in Christ. You're not in Christ. I don't care what religious ceremony you did at one point in time, if you are loving your sin and the thought of it being taken away would be like killing your own child, you're not in Christ. And I say that to you in love. Are you saved? Are you alive in Christ? And is your destiny to be with Him forever? If you say yes, how do you know? There's only one real correct answer to this, and it's not you, it's Christ. Alistair Begg, in one of his messages about the assurance of salvation, is that we have to pray. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because it's easy for us to forget Christ's work in salvation is total. And he talks about the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, when he gets to heaven, and he gets before the angels, and they ask him, why is he here? And what does he say? they say, you know, and he theorizes, they ask him, do you know about the doctrine of justification by faith? And he probably says to them, I don't know what words you just said. Let me ask, let me get the supervisor angel in here. All right, why do you think you belong in heaven? You know, what the only thing that he could say possibly when he gets to heaven is this. The man on the middle cross said, I can come. Amen. I know I am saved because the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Alistair Begg was speaking to a Chinese national um, over over at a college one time, and he asked her, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Because she was, a, she was a believer. And her response was, I entered through the narrow gate. We have the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just told you all these things, and you can parrot those, and it's truly not mean them when I ask you, but here's the thing that you cannot hide, not forever. You love each other. You love each other. Verse 14. We know, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. That's interesting. Do you ever hear that much? That 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 phrase right here? Much about do you know if you're saved? You know if you're saved because you love other Christians. No, many people make a pastime of running other Christians down. Of, of, uh, of talking about all the problems in the church, but we know that we've been brought from death to life. How? Because we love other Christians. Whoever does not abide in love abides in death. Some people's favorite pastime is running down their brothers and sisters in Christ. This is counter to your nature if you are in Christ. Our bonds of love and our bonds of fellowship should never be broken. I often wonder if God loves using the metaphor of the family because the church is so much like a family in this. I always love those in my family. I don't always like them. (laughs) There are some times where things are not going super smoothly between the fishers. But I always love them. I always love them. No matter where they're at, no matter what mistakes that they have committed, I always love them. I know they always love me. So too should be in the church. We have conflicts. We quarrel over the most stupid things in church. But we should never let those things eclipse our bonds of love for one another. You wonder why Satan attacks the family so much in the wider culture? It's because he wants to attack the church specifically. He wants to make our idea of the church a dysfunctional family. As opposed to the true family of God. Why is love in church so difficult? Love in church, and in churches, is difficult. But why? It shouldn't be. It should be easy and natural. Well, it should be natural because it comes from the Spirit that God has put in us. But it's not easy because real people are difficult. Many people like the concept of people in general, right? Oh, the poor huddled masses. But when you actually encounter and actually interact with real people, love becomes something much more difficult than we ever could imagine. Real people are difficult. So many humanitarians really don't like people at all. They love people as a concept, but actual people? Why Why do so many people in church deal with loving each other? Well, one is hurt, and I've talked about that in a very recent sermon. I'm not going to go over that. But those are some of the worst wounds we experience, is is wounds within the church. When somebody who should know better does it anyway. And we choose to forgive, we choose to love, even though we've been hurt. That is one of the hardest but most important lessons for us to learn as believers. Two, they believe a person who has a hard time loving other Christians, they believe lies and their lack of a loving attitude is a result of those lies. Third, they're just simply in rebellion to God. And your unloving attitude is primarily because you're in rebellion to God. Fourth is the sin of pride. Pride keeps love at bay, especially in the church. Pride, and, uh, pride is often the root of conflict between believers. Whenever one... Whenever one wrongs another, it is pride that keeps a person from asking for forgiveness. We can, we can let pride sink into our discernment as well. That, that calling out false teachers, false prophets, it becomes a place of pride. We want to become a new inquisition. And it's more about the fight instead of restoring a brother to fellowship in the body. Now, I'm all for calling out false teachers and false prophets. We have that example so much in the New Testament— But I constantly have to watch my own heart. Because instead of it becoming, I want these people to come into repentance, to come back into the family, instead of trying to rip people out of it, it can be like, I hope they burn in hell, I'm better than they are. Because that's where my rebel heart wants to go. Because it feels good to put myself above somebody else. So i got to watch my own heart with this while I'm being faithful and calling out false teachers and false prophets. I have to watch my own heart because pride can seep in and pride will keep me from love. Pride also keeps love at bay when we think we are better than our fellow believers. When we think we are better than our fellow believers. In the early aughts, (laughs) whatever, uh, mid part of the 2000s, there was this really popular phrase, instead of being a Christian, you are a Christ follower. I remember there was this really cringy, like trying to be like the PC versus Mac thing. of Like, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower thing. And that was because there was people who were like, well, people have given Christians such a bad name. I don't want to be associated with that name Christian. I remember in in college, this one friend of mine was telling me this. And I told him, I'm humbled and I don't deserve to be called a Christian. And I know I was coming from a different standpoint. He grew up in the church. I didn't. So for me, the idea of being part of Christ's church to be called a little Christ, I know I don't deserve to be called that. So that Christ calls me his son anyway? Oh, please. And here's the thing. I'm not better than those who give Christianity a bad name. And if they're truly my brothers and sisters in Christ, I need to love them. It's not optional. Pride will keep us from love, especially when we think we're better than our fellow Christians. Here's what's so toxic about the idea that you are just going to the next level, next level, next level in your Christian faith, is that you look down on people on a different level. And you're like, oh, well, you're not you know, you're not a level 10 dungeon master or whatever um, like me. God just calls us to be faithful where we're at, and to trust him. Not to constantly be looking at how how to elevate ourselves over others. That will keep love at bay. In verse 15, John makes this crazy claim that hate is murder. But you know something? John wasn't the first one to make the claim. It was Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount. And it's true. It's true because Jesus said it, and that's the end of it. But it's also true because we know this, because we know that one person may have a different position than another person, but the same kind of hate and anger is the same. So you might have somebody Trying to think of a good example here. Like I was thinking about one time we were in Chicago, Becca, and there was this guy on the side of the road ranting and raving, and he had to be picked up. He had to be picked up by the police. In fact, no, I got a better. I got a better example. We were at Popeyes for the first time in Chicago, downtown Chicago. And this guy comes up to the counter, he had the audacity to ask for a two-piece, but he wanted the he wanted the breast and the thigh. Everybody wants that and nobody gets it, right? So the gal at the counter is like, no, no, no. If you want white meat, you get the drumstick and you get the you get the breast. If you want dark meat, you get the wing and the thigh. But he's like, No, I want the best. And uh she's like, no. And he starts getting in her face, and she's like this like little gal, like you know, about like five, two. And he's like six, five. And uh, he starts getting angry, he starts screaming, and she's like, no. He's like, he's like, and she's like, I'm going to call the police. He's like, call the police then. And me and Becker are eating our chicken like, <laughs> "It's about to happen here? She calls the police, and the police pick him up, I believe. And uh <laughs> we were wondering, he's like, is he about to kill her over chicken? <laughs> All right, so... We see that he couldn't enact his vengeance, but you know who can when you see military leaders get angry? People die. And they die by the thousands and thousands. When leaders, when Kim Jong Un is angry at his uncle, he has him, he has him take a mortar round to the face. C.S. Lewis said this much better than I could, that just because the actions are different, the stain on the soul is the same when it comes to hate. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands and another so pleased so placed that however angry he gets he will only be laughed at but the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both each has done something to himself in which unless he repents will make it harder for him to keep out of the keep out the rage next time he is tempted and will make the rage worse than he does when he does when he does fall into it each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in their central man straightened out again. Each, um, each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is seen from the outside. It is not what really matters. So that is the message of love. We are to call one. Another, we are to love one another, and we are not to hate one another. For hate is murder love acts verse 16 through 18 love does or as one has put it hey tell me haven't you heard love is a serious word hey i think it's time y'all learned. i don't care what you say i don't care what you heard love love is a verb are you down with the dc talk seriously though Love acts. Love does something. A person who loves does something about the love. There is power in love. You want to know what love is? Verse 16 reminds us what love is. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's kind of a high high bar, right? Could love just be, you know... Wishing you something well on Facebook when it's your birthday? I have to lay down my life for you? That's a love that is so much powerful than anything the world has any idea of. Now, oftentimes when I talk about love or what is love, I like to make fun of 80s ballads because they are ridiculous. I was kind of the tail end of the MTV generation. So whenever I talk about what the world thinks about love, I like to do that because they're ridiculous. And also because when it comes to all the prophets and philosophers, I think they're about the same as an 80s ballad. <laughs> most of those most of those in the 80s wanted to tell us what love is, but really none of them really had any concept. Maybe Striper, actually. It doesn't really mean anything. Um, let me pick on a 90s country song today. This person wanted to tell you what love is. He said, love is a rhythm of two hearts beating, pounding out a message, steady and true. Talk to me, baby. Tell me what you're feeling. I know what love is. What, what's it to you? Sorry, dude, you don't know what love is. Right. Because if love is the rhythm of two hearts beating, if that means anything at all, what happens when they get out of rhythm? But love never fails. Love is sacrifice. Love is laying down our life, bearing one another's burdens. And in this way you fulfill the law of God. Verse 16, by this we know love. It's not a question. It's something we've been told. Lay down your life. No poet, no songwriter, no sage, and no guru has even touched that. Verse 17 is the practical aspect of love. It's one of the most abused verses. People like to use this as a proof text for any number of things. But let's look at this just plainly. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet chooses in his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's very simple. If you see another believer who's in need, and you can, you should help them. This does not mean every need, every want. The person's like, I'm really needing a PS5, so you have to get them a PS5. No, it means that when we feel the bonds of love between another brother, we don't shut that out. Another sister, we don't shut that out. We go, we sacrifice. We see them as though they were part of our own family because they are part of our own family. In the next verse, verse 18 Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Talk is cheap. Well done is better than well said. You will find no shortage of people who want to help the poor. You know, surprise. Everybody talks about helping the poor, very few people actually want to go and help the poor. You will find a major shortage of people who actually want to actually help the poor. A whole lot of people will talk about it. Very few people will actually do anything to lend a hand. In college, I remember I had a friend, or whatever, acquaintance, and he had me sit through this like half-hour-long diatribe on how the most important thing in the Scriptures was helping the poor, that it was more important than abortion, evangelism, doctrine. The most important thing, because it was mentioned the most amount of times, is helping and feeding the poor. And I remember all this, and it was about a week before spring break. In college, spring break is the time where everybody wants to party and everything, right? Well, me and some friends were going to go to a homeless shelter, and we were going to feed, clothe, work, try to be of whatever service we possibly could for spring break. So after he was done with his diatribe, how important it was, it was more important than everything else, I told him, hey, for spring break, we're going to the cities, and we're going to do everything you just said. Do you want to come? I'm sure we can make space. You'll never believe it, but he was busy. I can't imagine what he could have been busy with since that was, it's said more times than anything else in the Bible about helping the poor, but he was busy at more important things. Love does something, love also perfects. Verses 19 through 24, it's more than a feeling. There's this line in Star Wars don't think, feel. The Bible really makes the exact opposite point by this we shall know not by singing a few songs and tearing up not by but it's by the outpouring of our heart that our mouth speaks and through the outpouring of our hearts the actions flow from that grateful heart it's more than a feeling motions are not unimportant but they are not all important verse 19 by this we shall know that we are of the truth not by anything else but by what love does between us. We shall know that we are, we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Verse 20 is probably one of the most encouraging verses you will ever come across. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than your heart. There is something called false assurance where we believe we're in the faith, but we're really not. But there is also false guilt. That's why Romans 8.1 says there is no guilt, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John will go on to say that the one who fears, and it's a fear of judgment, has not been made perfected in love. Because John knew, the Holy Spirit knew, writing through John, is that even though we are loving each other, we are loving God, and we are in Christ we can have a false guilt, and our hearts condemn us, though they have no right to. The worst advice you can ever have is follow your heart. When you're an unbeliever, your heart wants destruction. As a believer, your heart can condemn you. There's a, there was a pastor in the 19th century, C.H. Spurgeon. He's been known as the Prince of Preachers, and he dealt so strongly with depression. He talked about it's sorrow with no cause. Like, nothing's bad going on, but I feel such a great depth of sorrow. He says, only the hand of God can move away those dark clouds. It's more than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. We stand on the truths of God when our heart condemns us. God is greater than our hearts. But for those of us who our hearts do not condemn us, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If our hearts do not condemn us, if we are believing the truths of Jesus Christ, then we have this great confidence before God because then we focus on being more like Him. The things that cause God's heart sorrow, cause our heart sorrow. So then in the next verse that has been totally plucked out of its context to mass people's greed has a different context to it. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Here is what that looks like in context. As I get closer to the heart of God, therefore I want the things God wants. So prayer is not trying to convince God to do something he doesn't want to do. Prayer is aligning my heart with the heart of God, and then I eagerly pray because I desire what he desires. We have this song that we'll sing, and I, I love it. I think it's probably means something different than what I take it as, but it's, um, it's uh, uh, you said, you said, asking you will receive whatever you need. And the, the refrain is, Lord, we ask for the nations. There are people criticize that because that's what God promised to Jesus Christ. And I'm like, that's what I want. I want him to have the nations. I want the earth to be a footstool for his, for his feet. I want him to see him come in his glory. That's my great desire. And that is when I'm in him, when I am following him, and my heart doesn't condemn me. Whatever I pray for in his name, I receive. Because I want what He wants. There's people I love who don't know Christ. When I'm not in Christ, when I'm not loving the way I should love, I want all kinds of stuff of this world. I think a new car will make me happy. I think new a, a vacation will make me happy. But when I'm in Christ, I would give my life if they could know if they could know him. I would give everything I had if they would if that would make them get for them to know him. Verse 22 is often is often taken out of context to disguise greed. Verse 22 does not mean you're getting that private jet or Lamborghini. What does the context lead us to? That when my heart doesn't condemn me, I have confidence before God, and I request. What do I request? The things that are by his heart. That my desire is not for worldly, worldly goods. My desire is for the bigger things. Worldly goods are small, insignificant, pitiful things. And I'm not satisfied with them. I'm satisfied with the greater things. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Those watching at home, we're going to be ending our our live broadcast. We're going to be doing a child dedication.